The incredible advances in machine learning research in recent years often take time to propagate out into usage in the field. One reason for this is that such state-of-the-art results for machine learning performance rely on the use of handwritten, idiosyncratic optimizations for specific hardware models or operating contexts. When developers are building machine learning-powered systems to deploy in the cloud and at the edge, their goal is to ensure that the model delivers the best possible functionality and end-user experience. And importantly, the hardware and software stack may require different optimizations to achieve that goal. OctoML provides a SaaS product called the Octomizer to help developers and AI ops teams deploy machine learning models most efficiently on any hardware, in any context. The Octomizer deploys its own ML models to analyze your model topology and optimize, benchmark, and package the model for deployment. The Optimizer generates insights about model performance over different hardware stacks and helps you choose the deployment format that works best for your organization. Luis Ceza and Jason Knight join the show from OctoML. They join the show to talk about how OctoML is automating deep learning engineering and why it's so important to consider hardware when building deep learning systems, as well as the evolving field of deep learning. Guys, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. What are the problems with machine learning deployments in 2021? Yeah, so essentially machine learning is still just too hard. And in, especially in deployment, a lot of effort has been spent on the you know, training frameworks and data annotation and management frameworks. But the deployment side of things, in part because uh, the, the increase in the number and variety of hardware backends that we've seen over the last few years makes deployment even more difficult. So uh, in 2021, you're, you're looking at a number of problems. One is typically vendors, uh, silicon vendors, hardware vendors have software-specific solutions for their hardware they recommend you deploy to. So, uh, and these often vary in terms of the performance you get and the type of coverage you, you see when you're trying to deploy workloads to a given piece of hardware. And they have different APIs and different installation and and so you have to learn the ins and outs of these as you go forward. And then whenever there's a problem in terms of performance or coverage for one of these operators in these underlying software stacks, then you have to go in and, you know, if you can, even try and fix this and patch around it, writing low-level code for that specific hardware. So typically performance and portability and go-to-market, uh, the resulting you know, slowdowns in getting your model to actual production are the, the three kind of pains we see in this space. And is there room to build tooling to improve that process? Yeah, I mean, because there's so much heterogeneity, it seems really hard to build tools for this space. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, great question, Jeff. So basically, with the, you know, the TVM, the now Apache TVM, project started with the observation that this large collection of models and growing collection of models that the world cares about and it's trying to be embedded in a bunch of uh, applications more and more. Uh, and there's a growing set of hardware targets uh, that these models need to to run on. So this cross product is, is large. And as Jason said, it's a very complex ecosystem and many, many layers to get from the framework down to hardware. We started TVM because we wanted to form a clean, unified abstraction across all hardware that the frameworks and the data scientists can Targets and then 
you know, optimi- automatically optimize and really tune the model to specific uh, hybrid targets in a clean and unified way. So you're right, yeah, there's a lot of heterogeneity and that's exactly the genesis of the TVM project. And then TVM, the way it works in a nutshell, we can go as, as deep as, as you think is, uh, is interesting here, that it has its own internal representation of these models that enables a lot of automatic optimizations and you know, code tuning to specific hardware targets uh, in an automated fashion, and it uses machine learning to do that because precisely to deal with the with the intricacies of tuning, you know, models and the low-level libraries that Jason was talking about to specific hardware target involves quite a bit of heavy engineering that's done by hand. When we replace that with a machine learning guided engine to optimize the code, yeah, going even further back. You know, if you pick up the Dragon compiler book or look into compiler design as it's been taught for decades, then you'll see that the techniques that are used to construct compilers are, you know, rooted from those days that typically heuristic driven set of compiler passes. And uh, to your point, Jeff, you know, the heterogeneity and complexity and and just raw performance demands of modern accelerator hardware and, and general purpose hardware as well leads to more and more complexity. And the innovation of TVM was, well, we have new tools now. And machine learning is one of those tools. So can we take machine learning and apply that back to the the process of compiling machine learning workloads themselves? And that led to TVM and led to all of the performance and portability and, and uh, time market savings that we're seeing now. Can you go a little bit deeper on what TVM is and the Apache TVM and, and the motivation for it? Sure. So TVM is a, a open source deep learning compiler and runtime, and it's actually a, a, a toolkit. So you can, it's, it's quite flexible as opposed to just a compiler front end with very few knobs. It's, it, it has the compiler front end, a nice easy to use command line that can take any machine learning or deep learning model and and then compile that to an efficient executable form of that model that you can run on any given piece of hardware. But due to the flexibility, there's there's a number of interesting pieces in that. One is that inside the TVM compiler engine, as, as we mentioned, there's uh, we're using machine learning guided search uh, similar to you know what you would see in, in kind of uh, Alpha Zero or, or uh, one of these. Uh, kind of minimal guided search procedures to find the most efficient way to represent that model execution on a given piece of hardware uh, more efficiently than than what you would find for what you know humans are able to do by hand for a generic broader swath of of uh, design space uh, because we can tune for that particular workload or the machine learning guided procedure can tune. The other main use case for TVM, in addition to compiling whole models and then you know, getting a deployable binary out the other side and, and deploying that and getting performance and, and portability uh, advantages is that uh, if you're a researcher and you're you know, experimenting with new variations of you know, transformers or convolution variants or, or recurrent models, then TVM gives you a rich set of tools to describe algorithms at a high level of, of abstraction uh, and yet get good performance code at the bottom for any uh, hardware that you're interested in, NVIDIA GPUs, AMD GPUs, Intel CPUs, AMD CPUs, et cetera. And so both the kind of full model compilation and kind of custom workload, custom algorithm, experimentation and, and compilation are 
the two primary use cases. I guess there's the third, which is for silicon vendors themselves, you know, looking up the stack, they need to get their piece of hardware accessible to a broader use, uh, user base. And, and they want to enable these higher level abstractions. And TVM enables you as a hardware silicon vendor with a much lower amount of effort to get a, a high performance compiler that with all of these, you know, kind of front ends uh, that are user-friendly Python and, and deep learning framework integrations in front of your users more quickly. So how does TVM fit into a typical workflow of a machine learning developer? Right. So if you're wanting to deploy your model and you just want it to go fast and, and you want to maybe experiment with new platforms or, or just optimize for the platform you're currently using, then uh, today, once you've trained your model using TensorFlow, PyTorch, uh, Keras, whatever, then you have that serialized model sitting on disk. You pass that into TVM through uh, either the command line interface or the, the Python API or C++ if, you, if you'd like. And you optimize that for the hardware that you're interested in. And uh, through that compilation optimization procedure, you then get a, uh, a binary out the other side, a, a, a shared library with you know, whatever API you want on top, C API, Python API, Java API, whatever. And then you integrate that back into your, your broader application code. Uh, the APIs are quite straightforward. And then you ship that alongside the rest of your application. And then I, I'm happy to you know, get into the other two workloads as well if you're, if you're the researcher or the, the silicon vendor or software provider. Oh, so this is like, you know, a quick summary that I, I think might bring it all together here is that from the hardware vendor's point of view, their goal is to make sure that, you know, machine learning end users make the most out of their hardware without them having to worry about catering to every single specific use or every single specific framework, which happens to be the case today, right? It's simply not scalable even for the, the, the big hardware vendors. Now, from a machine learning end user point of view, what they want is not having to worry about, you know, what they need to do to their models in developing them to actually make them run well in whatever hardware targets they, they want that to, to run, right? So uh, even not having to worry about the hardware vendors specific software stack, which often, uh, often tends uh, to be not the friendliest and not the easiest to use. So abstracting that away is of significant advantage to machine learning and users too. So the TVM compiler is going to analyze my model and re-architect it for a lower level execution? Is, is, am I understanding it correctly? Yeah, so the... Without something like TVM, what happens is your model is described in a high-level framework like uh, TensorFlow or PyTorch and, and uh, whatever their serialized model representation is, is just a high-level representation of, of what those computations and sequencing and, and inputs and outputs are. And, and typical uh, execution frameworks will then iterate over that model and, and invoke pre-packaged libraries of, of optimized versions of convolution or batch, uh, batch normalization or you know, uh, matrix multiplication and invoke those in sequence. And the way that TVM does this instead is uh, by actually analyzing and evaluating your entire model and then generating that low-level code directly for your model uh, and then compiling that into a, a shared library 
on disk and then invoking those specialized kernels instead of these generic kernels that are prepackaged by silicon vendors. So that's the slight difference between how TVM operates and, and it actually compiles your model to specific kernels for your version of the model versus just generic versions that can, you know, that are that are prepackaged by your hardware vendor. Interesting. So do you have to write the all the the logic to have that optimization code for each different kind of target silicon or, or i guess I, I don't know the the interface between you know machine learning model execution and uh hardware well enough to ask the, the right questions yeah here. yeah no, no, it's a, it's a great question. Yeah, how this sounds too good to be true, right? <laughs> how how can you know you get a high level description of a mathematical computation down to efficient code uh, when this has been really the the goal of compiler design for decades now, in, in the HPC realm and the compiler realm. And the way this works is that uh, essentially, there you know in TVM's construction, someone has gone in and for a general class of hardware like CPUs or all GPUs described what are the high-level ways of, of um, you know, kind of breaking down or uh, transforming loop nests for dense linear algebra or, or just even numeric uh, code bases and, and enumerated kind of not all possible but, but most of the, the common uh, techniques for, for transforming or, or manipulating these, these what we call loop nests uh, to get them from a high-level naive form of description that would be, you know, effectively the same computation but terrible performance, and and transform those instead to high-level or high-performance, low-level code. But the key difference between traditional compilers and TVM is that instead of uh, humans heuristically describing when to apply these different types of operations and in what sequence and you know only in these cases do this one but only followed by this one tvm only just has requires someone to describe the set of operations and then tvm will discover the appropriate uh, set and ordering of those uh, for this particular workload automatically as opposed to kind of a set of heuristics being developed over decades by compiler engineers trying to handle all all cases Got it. And so if as a machine learning team, are they consuming less resources? Give me a, a bit of a description for the, the macro impact of this. Yeah, so the, the primary three benefits of, of TVM, uh, applying a compiler like TVM to your a machine learning workflow are that you see higher performance uh, because we can specialize or TVM can specialize your workload you know, for your workload and for your hardware, we typically see more than 2x performance gains on average uh, than, than the best baseline, uh, other baseline available on that uh, hardware target. Portability is another one. So even if you don't change your hardware platform today, uh, perhaps you're, you've already optimized for you know, cost and, and latency uh, for, for what you need today. But this uh, enables you to potentially experiment with other platforms down the down the line, experiment with edge uh, computation as well to offload costs or for privacy reasons, and and execute this in addition and or maybe in you know partial scenarios or uh, on the edge in addition to your cloud workload or trend you know migrate the entire workload, and then the third is is time to market right so 
you know, oh, you now there's a new variant of Transformer that you want to try out. And because TVM as a compiler is so flexible, then you're much less likely to hit uh, the kind of gotchas that are typically seen in terms of, oops, you know, the vendor-specific provided inference engine doesn't support that model yet, so you have to wait for them to support, you know, the, the 3D version of this model that you're interested in or, you know, for, for more color channels than what they expected people to assume. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's much quicker. And we've, we've talked to many users who, you know, from after the model's trained, getting a model in production is on the order of weeks and, and often months and even full quarter or two quarters on average. So it's uh, depending on the scale and complexity of the deployment. That's without yeah. TVM, by the way. Yeah, so I just want to um, also add the perspective that, you know, a lot of the benefits apart from automation, you know, from months to hours, is really stems from really, really awesome performance, right? So, you know, we offer anywhere from 2x, sometimes 30x better performance. And that, you know, has a bunch of ways of reaping those benefits, right? One is, if you make something 10x faster, you're likely enabling an application that wasn't possible before, especially important for Edge, for example. If you're doing computer vision in the Edge, you don't hit a certain frame rates, you know, then it's not, uh, it's not uh, ready for deployment. But also, you can be see, you can, you can see that uh, performance gain as, as a way of saving on costs if you deploy it uh, at scale in the cloud, right? If you make something 20x faster, you know, use 20x uh, fewer cloud resources, or, you know, you can also, as Jason said, since you can use TVM to easily see how your model runs in a highly optimized way in a variety of different hardware, it can help you procure what is the best instance in the cloud that gives you the highest throughput per dollar. But everything stems from the fact that uh, TVM is really good at at really specializing a model to specific harder target and give a lot of uh, a lot of performance as a result. It might be worth spending a minute on the optimizer, uh, Jason, just to say abstracting TVM away even more, right? So yeah, that's a great point. So you know we've been talking primarily about TVM and, and its benefits, and we've we've seen TVM be so successful at, at delivering these three benefits of performance, portability, and and um, time to market. But uh, we, we, want, we noticed that the one trend it was that TVM is still a, a toolkit. And even though it's, uh, we've, the community's done a lot of work in making it easy to use, it's still a relatively advanced piece of software. It's even hard to describe on a, a podcast, uh, for example. And so we, we realized there was an opportunity to go and take TVM and its advantages and benefits to an even broader class of developer and data scientist. And so that is what led us to the creation of, of OctoML and specifically our first product that we call the Optimizer. And uh, happy to go into this more, but the Optimizer is designed to take TVM at its core and make this even easier to use and, and more applicable in a vari- wider variety of scenarios because it, uh, we have all the hardware hooked up internally and all the configurations set up for the user. And we have all the packaging and, and uh, build processes hooked up internally. So you literally just get uh, from your model to optimized binary, whether it's a shared library in a tarball or a Python wheel, uh, binary packaged, uh, ready to go, or even a full Docker image with a gRPC wrapper, whatever format's easiest for you. And you don't need to worry about you know, what CUDA version is, is being built uh, with, or is that CUDA version compatible with you know, the, the parameters I passed into TVM and all of these types of, uh, types of things. So let's continue to to walk through this. I think just to to refresh people and make sure that we're we're giving a, a clear explanation for what OctoML does. 
so the steps are first, there's a model that's uploaded. You've got your model in TensorFlow or um, what it, PyTorch, whatever else. It gets optimized and benchmarked and packaged for whatever hardware platforms you need. And then the, the performance of the model gets comp- compared across different cloud instance types to evaluate the requirements of of the model. Can you talk a little bit more about that process of evaluating the the requirements needed for a model and and assessing how it should be deployed? Right. Yeah. So it it varies a lot, and I've um, been continually impressed at the the variety we've seen from uh, user and customer feedback. And uh, some people need, for example, just raw performance, and they don't care where the hardware, what hardware it is. What batch size is is required? Even accuracy is is you know they're they're quite willing to trade off accuracy if for raw throughput, uh, all the way to the other side where it's you know highly accuracy sensitive, and then there's you know high latency concerns with regards to models that are in the the tight loop of of a user request reply uh, type scenario, and so that was one of the foundational principles of of what we've built at OctoML is that we need to kind of be flexible enough and, and get out of the way of what users have the needs for their applications and and give them the flexibility they need while automating all the rest of the details away. And so, you know, the the we've designed the experience to be uh, as as straightforward and seamless as possible. Where you upload your model, specify uh, the the batch size that you're interested in, and then that then we optimize for that batch size and, and model input shape and uh, give you the best possible performance for that resulting batch size and uh, hardware configuration. And so what that then enables the user to do is then determine you know, and, and do their own sweeps of, well, let's try a few different batch sizes. Uh, maybe I'm trying to optimize for latency uh, throughput, and I'm going to try large batch size regimes, and maybe I'll try a few options, compare the resulting performance on, on various hardware types, and then use the data that, that the optimizer provides uh, and the performance gains to to really uh, eke the most out of the systems that are in the the regime of you know operating that they're looking at. On the other hand, on the latency sensitive regime, maybe you want to you know kind of lower the the batch size as as much as possible while still staying or increase it as much as possible while still staying under a latency target. But you're going to start from a small batch size and and kind of you know work your way up to increase throughput or you know and lower your costs as long as you're meeting that SLA. And so we've designed Optimizer to be, you know, agnostic and, and flexible to support all these different use cases. And then as we roll out quantization as well, then being able to look at uh, so so that's one one point I should make is that right now all the optimizations that we've been talking about in terms of performance are accuracy preserving. So there's no degradation of accuracy. It's just we're taking the exact same computation and just executing it more efficiently. Whereas you know coming soon in our roadmap is is actually doing the quantization uh, and and a lot accuracy uh, loss loss uh, lossy uh, optimizations on top of that for users that are willing to take that trade off and then giving that those decisions back in the hands of the end user you know to enable them to con- compare and and take um, consideration of okay now I can look at the full Pareto curve of accuracy and performance. And let me choose, uh, based on my knowledge of the application, where I'm able to make that trade-off. And so really putting the, the, 
the power back in the user's hands while automating the the details of you know exactly you know what depth of of search are we doing for any given kernel and and uh, what layer you know fusion depth we're, we're performing in terms of the optimizations in the back end so those are all kind of hidden from the user and how do you see deployments for machine learning models uh, changing in, in the near future? Like, obviously, OctoML can only work on one part of the deployment frustrations at a time, but how do you see things changing in the near future? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a couple of, of interesting trends we're seeing. One is the shift to edge that I mentioned. Um, while cloud deployment still is, you know, by far the largest and uh, most common deployment uh, avenue, there's more and more interest in, in deploying to the edge, either in addition to or, or kind of migrating to the edge directly. And so that, I've talked a little bit about the complexities there. Another trend is the kind of increase in, in adjacent services and, and needs. So performance and, and um, coverage are just, you know, two of these, but, uh, you know, is the their data drift right? Is the data that I'm seeing and uh, you know doing inference time after deployment the the same or, or close enough to statistically to what I was training on? And am I expecting to get good accuracy as a result of that? Explainability is another one. Uh, there's a great paper about the uh, technical debt of, of machine learning that goes into you know the the myriad of of extra concerns around deployment. And our thought here on this is that we fit into the deployment process in terms of this portability and performance angle. And because we're so flexible, we play nicely with all these other components. So we've already talked with other companies in the area of model monitoring, data drift detection, explainability, and already determined that our solution fits really nicely with these, uh, these solutions in a complementary way, because if there's an explainability model that you've licensed from some vendor or a data drift uh, kind of add-on module, then those uh, can either be compiled alongside your model as just other types of computations that spit out you know, kind of various metrics that are ingested by those adjacent uh, platforms or solutions. Or post-deployment, you just uh, plug up, because you know, the model that we give you, you deploy that in whatever application in Realm you want, then you can, you're you're free to hook up whatever solutions, either homegrown or, or third party provided uh, solutions for all of these surrounding capabilities and needs. Uh, as machine learning deployment becomes less of a dark art and more of a, you know a DevOps type culture or ML ops type culture, uh, and all of these best practices become the norm instead of kind of the exception. And so that's how we're positioning. And and of course. We, we have ideas on how these can be done uh, even better and, and kind of closer integrated to the solution. But, you know, today, right, we're really focused on the portability and performance side of things because it's it's already a lot to chew. Yeah, and just to add one more, um, a couple more trends there, actually. Um, one is um, it's pretty clear now that uh, applications who have, some of them already do have a collection of models that they use, you know, there's a model to do, you know, computer vision, and there might be decision trees, there might be, you know, a, a language model all integrated into a single application. So working with ensemble of models, well, is something that it's, I think is going to grow in importance. Now, the second one is, you know, language models getting extremely popular. It's uh, has, has implications on, 
you know, a lot of the practicalities of getting these models to production. One is these models, is, these models are huge. Think of it as, you know, hundreds of billions of parameters in some cases. And second, they're much trickier to uh, extract good performance of than, you know, your, your typical computer vision model. So that's going to bring interesting, interesting challenges as they become more and more part of a, you know, commonplace application. So. I'd like to go a little bit deeper into the implementation, the technology of the compiler that you've built with TVM. So I guess, I mean, compilation is just is just very complicated and, and difficult. Can you just give me an overview for how a machine learning model compiler works? Yeah, certainly. So it's, as with most, most compilers, it's a multi-level process. So starting at the top of the stack, uh, you have a high, the highest level description of, of the algorithms or deep learning model. And this is on the order of, uh, we call it the graph layer. Specifically for TVM, it's called the relay level uh, or intermediate representation. Um, and, and this is essentially a high level description of the you know, course level uh, computations. And this is on the order of, you know, do this convolution with these parameter sizes then followed by this batch normalization, then followed by this element-wise, et cetera, right? It's, it's just um, a high-level description of, you know, a series of, of mathematical computations on kind of tensor-level objects. Um, and so there's a number of optimizations that actually occur here, like constant propagation, uh, dead code elimination, some types of fusion, et cetera. And uh, so these are these are done by kind of a series of, of uh, pattern matching and, and other operations. And then underneath that, you have a lower level representation. We call this the tensor IR or TIR level. And this is, takes those high level descriptions of the computations like COMV2D, like literally the string literal COMV2D, and, and now breaks that down into the fundamental you know, element-wise uh, scalar operations in a loop nest fashion. So, you know, over these dimensions, uh, do a for loop, and uh, at each element, you know, do this uh, single operation and accumulate into this 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 temporary, and and then write out the end results into this uh, scalar value and as part of this tensor. And it's at this level that uh, we take that representation of the the graph uh, or the computation. And then start applying these transformations to either manipulate or rewrite uh, these these loop nests into low level constructs. And depending on the platform that you're interested in, that either goes into uh, Vulkan compute shader or an OpenCL uh, code fragment or x86 uh, LVMIR, or even directly to uh, high level intrinsics like uh, vector intrinsics or or tensor intrinsics, uh, depending on the hardware platform and, and capabilities. And um, then once you've done that for the entire um, region of, of compute that you're looking at, and that, that's another conversation about what, you know, what that granularity is, then uh, you, you compile that using the underlying low-level compiler for that hardware. Uh, this is you know, using the OpenCL or, or CUDA or, or Vulkan uh, underlying assembler to actually get the resulting executable you know, out the other end, uh, machine code. And then that is loaded on the, the hardware and then actually performance measured benchmark to get the, the resulting runtime execution time for that fragment of code. And then that data point then is used to train 
well, I guess I, sh- I should stop there because that's the that's the compilation flow. And then now you have the kind of flow back of data of how well did that code perform? So that then you can actually choose another way of, of, of lowering that code and experiment and, and uh, using the machine learning guided approach to trying out different flavors of, of breaking that code down to a lower level. Yeah, if you don't mind me jumping, just uh, one, one important point here is that, uh, Jeff, when... Whenever you're compiling even just a single operator and even more so when you talk about the whole model, there's literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of different ways in which you can, you can actually translate an operator into code because you can do data layout in memory in different ways. You can actually order the loops in different ways, as Jason said, and then you can tile the data structures in different ways. And this gets... Um, you know, even it lets lead to even larger space when you're talking about tensors with higher rank. You know, we're talking about you know, uh, you know, data structures with many dimensions, right? So, so the question here is: like, if you had billions of variants of a single piece of code, all of them are valid variants from a correctness point of view. The big question here is: how do you pick the fastest one? We, there's no time to test them all. Like, because even if each one of them takes just a second to try, you're talking about billions of seconds of compute. So picking the fastest one is a key question. And you want to do that in a reasonable amount of time. That's where machine learning comes into play, whereas Jason was getting at. It's just doing measurements and building a model of what tends to work, what tends not to work, and improving performance and using that to build models to help you navigate this very large space. Right. And that sounds really hard. Like building a a, a, a deep learning or a machine learning based compiler that's going to be able to iteratively improve the the model compilation process so how do you how do you benchmark the success of that model so you com- you compile it and then you you presumably have to compile it and compile it and compile it again in different kinds of ways in order to have some benchmark for for how it actually performs, right? I mean, do, do you have to compile it and then execute it and then compile it and then execute it again and, and just go again and again and again? That's right, yeah. And, but every time we do it, we create a variant, compile and execute and measure its performance. We add the data point in our training sets to build a predictive model of how well future transformations are likely to do such that it can use that as a filter. So if you have pretty high confidence that a transformation is unlikely to yield better performance, you don't even run it. You just you save that. That's what leads to speed up in the process of exploring this very large space. And this can be significant, right? You can cut down so the time to, to do the whole variant compilation and measurement that takes seconds. You can cut down that to microseconds or maybe hundreds of nanoseconds just by using this machine learning-based filtering that comes that learns from prior prior executions. So I guess the the user of the TVM needs to have uh, a a training set that they can apply for this for this application for this compilation step. Not necessarily. So so actually, TVM out of the box supports learning this cost model um, de novo from uh, online essentially, and, and so the initial examples of uh, our initial compilations and and search will be essentially at random or maybe some slight heuristics, and, and then uh, you'll bootstrap that cost model and search process uh, directly without any training data whatsoever. Interesting. It obviously you know, helps if you do have that training data because you can you know, get to more efficient uh, kernels more quickly, but it's, it's not necessary. 
That's right. Yeah. So if you have the the better the data and, and models that you have to make this prediction of what optimization is likely to do better, the faster you get to a really good performing, you know, really high performing compiled model. And that's one of the, the value adds that the optimizer can offer is having this data set just ready to go for the harder targets that customers care about. So that's one of the value adds that we that we offer. You have this access to this data ready to go if you use uh, TVM via the optimizer as opposed to ramping up your own use of TVM. Also, one thing to note, Jeff, here is that I skipped one step at the high-level IR, which is while we are really excited and, and uh, see great improvements from, from doing compilation in TVM, we do realize that there are always going to be areas and situations where the engineers at places like Intel and NVIDIA have done their homework and, and written high-performance code that we can leverage out the gate. And so in cases where you know we can leverage that and, and we can package those binaries alongside the model, then uh, we can also compare the best code generation of TVM versus the, the execution of, of a pre-packaged kernel library from, from a hardware vendor. And then we can actually choose the best performing one and for each kernel in your, your model. So, you know, you, you think of a deep learning model as a sequence of, of computations. Some of those might be faster with TVM Cogen, some might be faster with uh, the prepackaged kernel library. And, and we can actually do the search over that as well and, and pick the best performing one. And so get even better performance than, uh, than just picking, you know, just doing code generation for all of them or you know, le- relying on a kernel library. So uh, it, j- just just to revisit the what you said about the the machine learning uh, based approach to to iterating on the compiled model. So I, I let's say I use let's say I, I I get my model, I use TVM to comp to compile it, uh, and then I put it into production, and then over time I'm I'm. I'm, uh, you know, using my model for classification or whatever. Is TVM able to detect over time that there are improvements to be made to the model that is in production? Yeah, that's a great um, point. So TVM itself is just, you know, software that, you know, if a user were to, you know, download the freshest set of, uh, you know, TVM or uh, check out the latest uh, master and, and then compile it and then try their model again, they might notice an improvement in performance, they might not. Um, and so TVM itself won't do that for you. But uh, that's one of the benefits of the optimizer is that, you know, as we improve uh, TVM and all of the you know, pieces around TVM as part of the optimizer, then we can continually test and, and when there are performance benefits, offer the user, hey, your, your model you uploaded, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, we now have a, a better performing version that's you know twenty percent faster. Uh, if that's in- of interest to you, download here, right? So that's that's definitely something we are uh, doing as part of the optimizer. So, what is the business model that you guys are pursuing? Obviously, this is some really cool technology. Uh, I think one of the the challenges you see for machine learning tools companies sometimes is. Uh, what is the best best path to monetization? Do you guys have anything in mind at this point? Yeah, so uh, it's it's all around the optimizer SaaS platform. Essentially, being this you know fully automated machine learning acceleration platform offered as a service with turnkey 
use and, you know, being able to cater to a broad set of users and not just, uh, you know, sophisticated machine learning engineers. That's our bet. We already have the optimizer, by the way, is um, um, we are accepting applications for uh, early access and we have a healthy, a healthy list of of customers who cater to there. So our monetization strategy now is to, uh, you know, charge for access to the SaaS platform. And we do have a few uh, potential product bets that we have in the works based on, on customer pool that will likely get there as the platform evolves. Also, it, it's worth noting, in addition to the optimizer, we're, we're driving a, another flywheel of improvement, both to the TVM ecosystem broadly and uh, back into the optimizer as well through working with uh, hardware silicon vendors directly in, in terms of improving TVM's capabilities and performance for their hardware. And so these are uh, companies like AMD and Qualcomm, and uh, we're, we're really excited to work with these partners and, and more uh, as, as we continue to improve the TVM ecosystem for uh, for them, for their customers, and, and back uh, that, that helps also in the optimizer platform directly. What are the biggest technical challenges that your team is faced with right now? It might be cliche to say this, but I actually think the engineering challenges are the least of our worries just because we have such an amazing team and the ability for the team like to... to automate difficult things that were, you know, once thought impossible, you know, continually impresses me. I think, you know, really just keeping on top of the pace of, of development of the machine learning ecosystem is is probably the main one, right? And, and it just manifests in so many different ways of, you know, the latest quantization scheme, the latest pruning scheme, the latest model types and, and operators. But those are almost advantages to us because we're, you know, the way we see it, we can more quickly you know, roll out support for these quantization and pruning and, and operators than, than anyone else out there across more hardware targets at the same time. Uh, so it, it almost benefits us the more quickly the machine learning field evolves. Yeah, and no, I just wanted to um, to add maybe a slightly different way of, of saying that is that it's, it's diversity, right? So diversity is growing more models, more different types of models, fast moving field, also set of harder targets, also growing. But luckily we have two things that allows us to, that gives us confidence that we can be future-proof. One is uh, automation, definitely automation first in everything we do, even what we do internally, automating the process of onboarding new hardware, automating the process of dealing with new, uh, new models and so on. And then second, the fact that we are very, very committed and we build you know, our, our growth is, is also related to the growth of the open source community. So the open source community is a huge amplifying factor of our efforts that's mutually beneficial with other players in the space as well. So let's say that, you know, the way we avert these, this, the diversity risk is really by automation and uh, working closely with a ever-growing community of developers. And to give you an idea of size, I think the numbers of yesterday, we have 471 contributors to Apache TVM, which is remarkable. Uh, given how, I mean, how young the project is in a number of ways. So, I meant to ask this question earlier, but what language do you write a compiler in these days? That's yeah, a great question. Uh, the core of T TVM is written C++ and has been from the beginning, but it's written in such a way that it's easy for other languages to plug in, uh, drive, and interoperate with 
the, the C++ machinery through a, a, a packed function uh, FFI interface. So, th- so what that means is that Python, for example, has you know, very deep integration and you can drive the compiler down to the you know, individual function calls if you wish. And we often do this for prototyping uh, in order to get you know, quick experiments for compiler passes and, and, and um, uh, various regions of the compiler. And then you know, moving those into C++ uh, once, once those are stable and, and tested out. Uh, we also have uh, more and more Rust contributions coming into the project, and we're pretty excited about the interplay between the Rust ecosystem and things like embedded uh, programming and just uh, the web stacks and, and, and data stacks um, and the ability for that to kind of open up um, high-performance code to a broader class of developers uh, and, and integrating into the kind of higher-performance runtime scenarios and you know, embedded and, and lightweight environments. Wasm and WebGPU is an example of this, uh, where you know you can write native uh, or Wasm accelerated applications in, in Rust today, and then you can then compile uh, TVM models to Wasm or WebGPU code or both, and then integrate those to your your Rust application for deployment to the browser. Uh, so that's just one example of how that language integration. But we also have Java JNI bindings and, and others as well. Yeah, I love that question because yeah, I've, I've worked in compilers early on in my career as well. And back then it was just assembly and C. And today, you know, the question is not which languages, how many languages you know, do you use? We have scripting and we have, you know, uh, declarative languages. And you have, uh, yeah, anyways, it's just quite an interesting how complex this whole ecosystem got. So just to wrap up, OctoML is based on an open source project that came out of academia. How does the academic perspective on machine learning compared to the industry perspective is there any difference it depends on which you know area you're talking about within each of those there's definitely overlap more so probably in this field than than in many others it's definitely much more of a or at least people by and large in industry treat machine learning more as a tool of okay I want to do a application or feature X, Y, and Z, and my customers care about you know these aspects. And, and machine learning is a, a component that can help me achieve those goals. And so I'm going to you know start as a base of of what you know I can find in the literature for similar applications, simpler similar model types, and then adapt those to my needs and just find the right solution that works. Whereas a lot of the academic work in this space that kind of machine learning systems community, which is the intersection of kind of machine learning algorithm design and actually executing these and, you know, large training systems and deployment systems, et cetera. It's much more, okay, how can we better position the ecosystem for building these kinds of uh, things for the future that will enable the end users, typically in industry, to, you know, deploy them faster, train them faster, uh, train larger models, et cetera. So it's a little bit more focus on kind of setting the foundation in, in academia, at least in the machine learning systems field uh, specifically. Though I guess you could you could make the same analogy with the algorithm design and, and you know model design in you know areas of academia as well. Versus the you know how can I use machine learning to you know for some customer driven or, or business driven purpose? But they're 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 pulling the same direction. It's just kind of a a slightly different window of focus in terms of 
you know, how much am I willing to invest and what time frame am I looking for that kind of return on investment, whether that's uh, longer in the academic sign or shorter in the, and, and that's a gross overgeneralization. The, the windows are more overlapping probably than, like I mentioned, than anywhere else. Okay. Well, Jason, thanks for coming back on the show. It's been a while, obviously. It's, it's been fun to watch your uh, continued entrepreneurial trajectory. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, it's, it's always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, gl- happy to be back. Uh, hopefully next time uh, we'll be even, even further along that trajectory. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Cool. Well, thanks, Jason.